You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford lecturer, a writer and a broadcaster, but most importantly, I'm your chief investigator of images. I'm joined by a good friend today, Dr. Adam Rutherford. I know we are going to have a brilliant time today recording this. Uh, We will try and keep it on track, Art Detective listeners, because I think we both have the tendency to deviate. (laughs) Bit of waffle when we chat. (laughs) Bit of waffle, but it's going to be brilliant. So, Adam, you're a scientist, a broadcaster. You have your amazing new book out at the moment. Give me the title. A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. Sort of slightly humble, unambitious title. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't reach too high or anything, (laughs) you know. Just just everyone who ever lived. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, notably in that that biography, none of the descriptions are art historian, are they? No, no. And I am pushing you (laughs) slightly outside your comfort zone today, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. But I think that I think that I've always been interested in the interaction between science and art and I think probably the best historical historically robust interaction between art and science has been in anatomy mm. and so that as I'm also quite drawn I know I realize this is not a very academic or intellectual thing to say but I've always been quite drawn to the visceral I got an unhealthy interest in horror movies <laughs> me and, too we've and, got that in common <laughs> yeah well you know we're both a bit goth we're a, bit, a little bit goth yeah um and, but I, th- I think that drove <laughs> that drove my interest in anatomical art and so so I've always been interested in anatomy and, so uh, you went that way, you see, because I, I mean, I think we do have this in common that I, um, I did biology A level against the advice of all my tutors who, who, who said, no, darling, you're doing arts and history and the humanities. You don't need biology A level. Well, I but didn't I was do exactly... biology A level, and I became a biologist. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh! So we'll see who's got the better basic knowledge now today. Oh, God, but uh, <laughs> I think, um, but there is, I, I absolutely love the interaction between, I, and I think that some of the best artists, as you say, I mean, you've done work on Leonardo, haven't you? in the anatomical drawings yeah when you see that biology is absolutely in the service of the arts because of the need for illustration that was one of the things i most loved about doing biology was the amount of time i spent drawing detailed diagrams yes yes and that's exactly right and that is the history of anatomy as well and it's only really in the 20th century when anatomy becomes properly scientific and properly biologized and, and until that point until medicine becomes a, a much more scientific vocation the, the the fusion of 
um, of, of illustrating anatomy and illustrating medicine goes back thousands of well, it doesn't go back thousands of years because the father of anatomy is Galen, mm. and Galen never drew, mm. and so there aren't any any um, there aren't any representations of what Galen was talking about in his anatomical works. Um, there's the suggestion that that, that some works of uh, very early anatomy, um, and we're talking sort of eighth and ninth century in the Middle East. Mm are derived from Galen's work. And so we see we see physical representations of, of them. But then it, it's not until you get to the 16th century when you've got Vesalius mm. writing and drawing the, the Fabrica, which is the sort of, you know, the, the, the real foundation of, of anatomy for centuries. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge, you know, coffee table book. Um, and it has those, those iconic figures which are quite gruesome mm. in in one sense but I, I i don't think people thought of them as being gruesome at the time well i think the other thing that's so interesting about um about the need for anatomical drawing is of course that so much of what it's representing is non-visual you can't see it you have to almost conceive of it and it's a bit like a chinese whisper that if one person has managed to dissection and one person has managed to capture that then the image becomes canonical and it becomes reproduced and yeah yeah it filters out and and with the absence of of free dissection that's I right under the church in particular that inability to actually access the cadavers and do those dissections meant that, that the images almost become more precious i think that's exactly right and it's not just it's not just um controlled by the church which did actually vary over time and i think i think that it's it's you know a lot of people say well we weren't allowed to do this because the church said so and and that's that's some it's true in in some situations and and not in others it's as determined the infrequency of dissection and the specialness of doing a human dissection is as determined in the past by the weather because all dissections were done um, until the 18th century in January because they didn't have any means for preserving the bodies. Oh my goodness. So there was an you know, annual dissection celebration in, in Bologna yeah. and in Padua, where Vesalius is. Because the vessels, of the, the particularly the vulnerable ones in the... the the thorax, they start to, to go immediately, don't well, they? Right, and that's exactly right. And there was a particular order in which these, mm. it, it, you know, very heavily choreographed performances. You know, these are theatres. The reason that we get operated in today in rooms called theatres mm. is because they were theatres. And people would, would, would queue up and they'd be big events and they'd be stacked in sort of social hierarchy with students right at the back and there'd be bands playing. And you've got the the, the, the top. Top. This is just in 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 Padua where they've reconstructed. <laughs> Sounds like a mad gig. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then they wheel in the body, and, and you've got this this performance. Oh my gosh! And and you've got this performance which involves you know very staged people. Mm. Um, you know the the instructor who's pointing at things and he's pointing at, at the fabrica of the Saint prepa- Lucy's book. Prepa- preparator. Preparator. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great job. Exactly. And and then you've got the, the you know the person doing the actual dissection. Vesalius changes all of that because Vesalius is, he he gets stuck in and as a young man coming from Belgium and now in Italy, he he wanted to do the dissection himself. So he was doing all the preparation and dissection and the instruction in front of all these, you know, big wigs sitting in the first few rows of of, uh, the Padua uh, Anatomy Theatre. Yeah, and so it is, you know, it's a heavily choreographed staged event in a theatre. It's also incredibly 
top end, isn't it? It's very high, high class, the people involved in this. In fact, what we really should do, Adam, is tell the listeners what we're looking at. Yeah, sure. Because we have sort of leapt in. Yeah. Um, you chose this image. Tell me what you've chosen and why. Well, this is... As far as I'm concerned, this is singularly my favourite piece of art that has ever existed, and it's the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp by Rembrandt. Yeah, you got the Rembrandt. You are the first person on Art Detective <laughs> to bagsy, not Simon Sharma, you. You have bagsy the first Rembrandt on our, on oh, our podcast. Well, I'm very pleased with, by, by that. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 I mean, genuinely, it, I find this this painting incredibly moving i think it does play to you know it's like goth tendencies it is it's it is morbid in a modern sense but it is incredibly beautiful i also think it's interesting because it's very odd you know the construction the mise-en-scene is peculiar to the time it's the first anatomical art as we've been talking about is a thing mm. by the 17th century because this is 1632 1632 and and the, the we were talking about the weather and the timing the time mm. of year it's January the 30th, 1632, because that's the date that this dissection was performed. And it happened once a year, I was reading. That's right. And then once every five or ten years, they would have that event commemorated in a large-scale painting. Right, right. And and, and it is, it is it, you know, the, the, the social hierarchy in the picture is very striking as well, because he's named, it's it's the prelector of Amsterdam, who's the sort of chief scientist, and he's Nicolai Tulp. Who was uh, also mayor. Yes, and he changed his name to Tulp, meaning tulip, yeah. in order to represent his, the, you know. <laughs> That's dedication to him. It really is. It really is. It's but like me changing my name to Adam Scientist. <laughs> yeah, it's completely. <laughs> but I do think that they're, they're, this idea of him being such a prominent member of Amsterdam society, yeah. all of that is wrapped up in this as well, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's not just, here he is demonstrating the dissection of, of the forearm, and he's surrounded by um, seven surgeons mm -hmm. and there's at this time there's quite a separation between surgeons surgery and science okay. and so there, there he is as the scientific instructor in front of these these um uh surgeons and they've all paid to be there well this is it i heard this that <laughs> tulp of all of them has probably paid the most yeah he's a com he's commissioned the, the painting from a 26 year old they're Rembrandt. all being paid to be represented so this is a fantasy as well isn't it we have to absolutely this didn't happen absolutely <laughs> absolutely it is a, it is a representation of an event that took place we know it's a fantasy for a number of reasons not just that it is it is incredibly staged obviously and and they are some of the eye lines are peculiar we're not quite sure what they're looking at this guy at the back is interesting and I forget his name but these are all real named people the guy, the guy top back he looks he, a bit like Lawrence Fox uh, yes he does <laughs> I'd never noticed that before he does before. look a bit like Lawrence Fox yeah he's sort of staring off into the distance well, I think he's he? breaking the fourth wall there I think yeah. he's looking at you he's looking at us well Rembrandt's brilliant at that I mean yeah. there is that whole idea of yeah totally looking out uh, and, and the idea that this is taking place dramatically in front of us i think he's done so much with the light hasn't oh, he the oh. light in this well, is you could talk about rembrandt and the light for the rest of time and still not get to the bottom of it we another reason we know it's staged is what we've already mentioned which is that they're dissecting the arm yeah and you wouldn't you wouldn't and nothing else is cut open on this on this body aris kint is his name a, a, an iterant criminal who was hanged um, uh, in January 1632. And it had to be an executed criminal, criminal didn't That's it, right. for dissection? That's yeah. exactly right. And we, we know that this is a, a, a fiction because they would always start with the viscera, with the stomach, mm. because that is the stuff that goes off first. Mm. So you get that out of the way before you do anything else. Mm. So the representation of the, of the hand 
is well i mean you're you're the 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 you you you're the expert on on symbolism within art <laughs> but you know that that the hand as an instrument of god as a Absolutely. as a, a you know an incredibly sophisticated thing that that's what they're looking at well it's in i mean the thing that's so interesting about this is rembrandt has managed uh, this is how i understand it because now i'm throwing it over to you as scientist um he has done this very very well he has managed to show details in here that suggests either he had access to anatomical drawings or possibly that he had witnessed something like this. Yeah. But the the level of detail is it's good, yeah. It's stunning. There's been a lot of analysis over the years of the actual anatomy on display in in this painting, and there's been some many studies saying that this can't be right, and mm. that this particular tendon or this particular muscle is in the wrong place. Apparently, something is attached to the wrong yeah, well, other thing. We, we, you know, we thing. need Alice Roberts here to explain <laughs> explain that. But I think it's all all of those. I I, I think it's. Many academics have sort of just thrown those out mm. as being a level of pedantry which is either incorrect or not interesting or not 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 relevant. And I I think that's I think that's that's the line that I take in this. There's there's also interesting things about just the social hierarchy going on here too. That Tulp is the only one wearing a hat. Mm. That's important. And there's a backstory to that as well. Same guy at the back who's look who I say is breaking the fourth wall yeah. was painted with a hat. And if you look very carefully, and on this reproduction we can't really see it because it's printed out from a BBC printer, but on the original you can see that there was a hat. I can see it. I can see it from here. It's the brim comes out there like that, and you can see the overpainting yeah. completely. Yeah. So he has a Rembrandt paints in a hat for chap at the back, and Tulp says, "Hold on a minute, I'm the prolector. I'm I'm in charge of this scene." Also, I paid more to be in this. Paint the hat out. <laughs> the hat goes. But I do find I think that the drama of this is. It, the fact that it is completely fictional is what interests me in a way because th these people have paid to be in this to be memor to be put on the wall and this is a huge painting as well we should give the dimensions so what did we say it was it was two, two meters, meters by, sixty something by yeah. one meter seventy yeah so it's big um, and and this idea that they they want to be hung in the well this would be in the the surgeons. Where is this appearing? Well, now it's held in the Moritz House, uh, which is one of one of the main museums in in the Hague, mm. not not in Amsterdam. Mm. Um, but there are lots of um, there are, there are lots of display galleries at the time. I'm not sure where it was originally meant to be. Um, As I say, I know that they were commissioning every few years for display alongside one another because then Rembrandt does another one later. Yeah. Uh, he paints his replacement, doesn't he? Tulp's replacement. That's um, right. But I think Dr. That, Damon. Dr. Damon. And, and they're very different paintings. We they can are. talk about that a bit. So um, when you go to the, the, the Rembrandt Museum mm. in Amsterdam, it's quite clear that he just collected lots of stuff and painted it. He, he had receipts and evidence that he bought stuff from butchers. Mm -hmm. And when he, he went, he went bust um, uh, a few years after this and his entire, the contents of his existence were inventorized by the insurers. And, and they it included weird stuff like, you know, a pig's foot. Yeah. And I, I think there were some human remains in there. There were, in, there were. Really? Honestly, the, yeah, I mean, the because now as well, you can go to Rembrandt's house and yeah. they've used the inventory as a way of, of, of reconstructing it and giving you the sense of what he would have had in it. But yeah, I mean, he did have all those strange curiosities. Um, and I think that maybe that's where he's getting the inspiration because 
I'm not very good at what I'm looking at here. This is much more your realm, but we can. This is the tendons that he's pulled up here. Is that right? Yes, yes. So all of the, all of the muscles for the hand. There are no muscles in the in the hand. Well, mm. not, no significant muscles in the hand itself. There are all of the muscles are actually in the forearm. Mm. And so you can see, for example, the pulmonaris longus. So if if you are to, I know this is radio or podcast, <laughs> but if you put your Adam's basically holding his hand up. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> if you put your thumb and little finger together mm-hmm. when it's on a flat surface, and then slightly inflect your your fit your hand towards your face mm. then you get a, a, yeah, yeah. a tendon pops up right there it is. There it is. <laughs> so, my hand looks all old and wrinkly when i do that yeah so that that <laughs> little thing there so that's that's one of the ten that's the palmaris long, long um longaris and that's that that is a a, a tendon which controls various aspects mm. of inflation in the, the arm. Now you can see that you know they've stripped back the flesh, they've stripped stripped back the the fascia, and he's holding up various muscles to and and to demonstrate to the surgeons this is what is going on in the forearm. They're also some of them are overlooking the mm. body, yeah, and they're looking at this big book in the corner. Now we think that is the fabrica. We mm. think we think that is Vesalius's big work that they're that you know he's sort of demonstrating it. But it's it's these are very different ways of portraying anatomy between Vesalius and Rembrandt's in that the, the, the Vesaliuses are, are they're, they're very much in, in sort of reference to classical poses. They're all these, you know, sort of very muscular chaps <laughs> standing in this beautiful Etruscan landscape in heroic poses as their flesh is slowly being stripped from them. Nice. Yeah, yeah. They're very beautiful. They're very stylized. And I think this is a, rep- this is a, this is a move away from that... Um, stylized, optimized view of human anatomy and into what eventually becomes the, 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 the scientific discipline of anatomy, which is that bodies are visceral and mm. grisly and they're more different on the inside than they are on the outside. And, you know, the, the whole word, the word autopsy means to see for oneself. Right. So, you know, the idea that they still teach in medical school, and I think it's essential as a, as a concept. You cannot learn surgery or anatomy from a book. Yeah. But you have to get your hands dirty. You have to get stuck in. And this is a middle ground. I can see that. I can. I, I think what's so remarkable about remarkable about Leonardo is he was anticipating what was coming later. But he was very much, I think, quite an anomaly in terms of the detail, the level of detail he went to in his anatomical drawings. We don't really see that again for a long well, period. Well, the, the story of, of Leonardo is is both brilliant and tragic because there there are what two hundred and fifty odd an, yeah, anatomical drawings he did. Yeah, it's amazing. And, they're all and then owned it's not by the just queen. that because then he does all the things on blood flow, water yeah, flow, yeah, emotions. Yeah. And none of them have any intellectual impact because he never published one of them. And so apart, the one that everyone knows is the Vitruvian Man, which is the only one not held permanently by, by the Queen Windsor, or Slough, as I like to refer to it. Thank you, thank uh, you. Yeah. A little nod to my hometown. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but you know, very famous images, the, the, the nuts, the in utero. That's amazing. But it is the in utero baby is, is just such a stunning drawing. And then there's, there's, there's another... There's, interesting anomalies within that so there's a there's a very muscular midsection of a woman but it was quite clear that he'd never anatomized a woman because (laughs) the 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 uterus itself is drawn from a cow and so it has anatomical features which women don't have like these sort of suspensory ligaments of which i think there are seven from memory that that cows have that hold the uterus in place inside the body and you don't have them (laughs) <laughs> but on this beautiful visceral 
you know, incredibly detailed, there they are, and you're looking at it going, yeah, as, as someone who knows a bit about anatomy, I don't really recognise quite a lot of these structures. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of find that, I find that absolutely amazing, because to me that is what art does. Art fills in the bits we don't know. Art is the product of, of both looking and imagining. Yeah. And actually what he's done is he's he's gone as far as he can go with his eyes, and then he's had to be creative and draw parallels and, and work from other examples. Yeah, that's I think that's fascinating, and that relates to another... I was teaching this this week... Um, about the early microscopists, so a little bit later, so um, late 17th century, also in um, in Holland, in Delft, um, where Anthony van Leeuwenhoek is the first, he's a draper and lowborn uh, tradesman, uh, but he, he makes the best lenses mm -hmm. um, because you need lenses to look at cloth, look at density of fibres in cloth. But he's also curious about everything. So he looks at rainwater. He looks at stuff between his teeth. He looks at his own blood. And and he, in all of those examples, he is literally the first person in history to see cells. Wow. And so the foundation of all biology starts with this guy with a powerful lens looking at stuff that he, he'd never seen before. But there's this one thing. when you, This is in reference to what you were just saying. So he also looked at his own sperm. And he kept that secret. He didn't. He didn't publish that. But we have the. We have it written in his secret oh, notes. Oh, boys, boys, boys! <laughs> oh, well, wait, wait. He qualifies this. <laughs> he qualifies this, and this is written down. And I, I, I had to say this on on the BBC Four doc um, a few years ago. He says, uh, he "You're not going to drop the C bomb again, are you?" <laughs> no. And, and, and again, I'd like to apologise to the listeners. <laughs> For that, I was quoting someone when you I said were, that. You were, no, you're quoting now, and that's what worries me. It's when you start quoting, I start worrying. Well, he said, he said, this sample was not supplied by sinfully defiling myself, but instead as a byproduct of conj conjugal coitus. Oh, God! And I think that's worse! Oh, <laughs> oh God! You, oh, yeah, that's lovely. I but know. the point is, as well, we, we totally, uh, we take a lot of our... Uh, attitudes towards I think the sciences and the humanities but we're always looking backwards from our modern perspective yes. and applying our own modern concepts of, of where we are now backwards but we have to remember that the idea of defining yourself was yes. a sin yes and so he couldn't you know he's, he's having to balance his own curiosity his own scientific curiosity with what was permissible absolutely socially. absolutely and, and didn't write it up well well he did write it up but he never published those results but we we, we still have them what's, what's interesting about what you're saying about you know people's seeing things that they, you know, applying a, a layer of narrative which are not visually represented by what they're actually looking at. He drew his sperm, and he drew them pretty accurately, and that's the first depiction of sperm. Um, other people with other microscopes drew sperm with homunculuses <laughs> inside them, homunculi, um, and where they saw physical bodies, curled, curled up little bodies. Tiny little baby ready yeah. to be made. And this, this posed a sort of theological problem because it also yeah. meant that that inside that little body, homunculus, is, is, more, sperm, is more sperm, which must contain more little homunculi, and then you know it's it, it's recursive I all the way back. I also particularly like the way that it completely writes the the female contribution oh, out. You're, of you're the just creation. a vessel. Yeah, you're, so it just pops into the egg, yes. and then it becomes. Yes, no, you're course. you're you're an oven. So you're, you're <laughs> an incubator for a complete person that already exists. Thank in, you. That's uh, a lovely concept. What a so, wonderful concept. But but there's the narrative. But then what happens is, in, in a similar way to the development of anatomy as a 
as it becomes more medicalized and more scienceified, it's not a word. <laughs> That's a real word. Um, is, <laughs> You've heard it here it first. Is now scienceified. Um, it is that you you can't you you ha there's a point where you have to stop imagining things in order to fit the pre-existing narrative, and there's a point where if this is going to be useful to people, which Vesalius's book was uh, meant meant to be. I mean, his, his the, the Fabrica was. Um, a big sort of coffee table book but there was another there was a sort of student version of it called the epitome which was oh my lord this is an amazing thing because it's basically a cut out and keep so it starts in the middle um and there's a man and a woman who are, who are fully um in, in full physical form in the middle pages and as you go as you turn the pages left the woman gets oh, denuded wow. and as you go right the man gets denuded but even better than that the final couple of pages are the instructions on how to cut out sections in order to overlay them. So, no. you, can, so you can put the vascul vasculature on, you can put the nervous system on top. And when I was looking at a copy of this in Cambridge Library, I, they, they, you know, we were sort of lifting them up with with wooden spatulas to, so, so as to, because they're quite fragile at this point. And I lifted one up and looked underneath it. And, and I said to the curator, there's some writing on the other side of this. And he said, yeah, basically the instructions say you have to cut them out of the book and then stick them on something that you, you know. Yeah. So this was the equivalent of a sort of 15th century, 16th century magazine. Yeah, take that. It reminds me of some, you know, 1980s cut out Barbie exactly. and stick and put the paper clothes With on. The little, I love it. The little With the tags. Absolutely. To, to put them around the side. But you know, but the thing is, I think, I mean, even now my kids have got little plastic sets where they can do exactly that you know layer up the, the organs yeah. and and it's amazing because we have the ability to to conceive of that i think my my children already can conceive of their internal organs through yeah. through constantly looking at books and looking at you know, there's so much evidence for them now but when we're looking at rembrandt's time when we're looking at the 17th century it is almost an unknown and almost an unforbidden uh, almost a forbidden world yes to open up a body is it's playing god in a dangerous sort of way. It's it's looking at the inner workings of what only God can make. Yep. That's the sort of theology behind it, that you're actually defiling a product of God, a piece of creation, and trying to understand it. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And and also it's one of the reasons why it's only the hanged man who gets uh, anatomized. Yeah. And so in, in a sense, this is his final redemption. Yeah. You know, this is this is his gift. Aris Kent in this in this example, who was an armed robber, yeah, an iterant criminal, yeah. um, um, not a nice, not a particularly nice guy, mm. um, but but his salvation is in effectively donating his his body to, for you know, for the greater good, for for knowledge. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I see this painting as sitting between lots of worlds, actually, because um, it's it's a step along the way to a much more thorough and scientific anatomical um, set of illustrations and drawings and paintings that we come to later. Uh, but it's also, but it's still looking backwards. It's still got so much echo of earlier paintings. Yeah. There's something very religious about it. Absolutely. The positioning of the body. It's, it's like the arrangement of Christ and you've got the, the figures surrounded all lit centrally. Very, there is something. Like disciples, aren't they? Absolutely. So as far as I'm aware, and I may be wrong on this, but as far as I'm aware, this is the first anatomical um, uh, painting, first anatomy lesson painting, in which the body is laid out from left to right. Side, yeah. Um, so there are there are plenty of others and contemporaries where there are various bones where they're held upright, mm -hmm. or but but this as a depiction, I, I mean, it, it, you'd be in denial to not say that that he looks Christ-like. Totally. Well, it, I mean, even the, the, the laying of the shroud. I mean, there are very famous earlier Renaissance paintings where you have this foreshortening of the Christ, Christ laid out after the crucifixion, where you can see the soles of the feet like you can here. Um, and, and I mean, I do think the lighting is important. I think this, this radiance on the body. When you say redemption, that's what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing the kind of the idea that this this is not some awful behind closed doors weird process that's taking place these are decent upright men intelligent men yeah. doing something worthwhile with a figure who is redeeming himself through through this act yeah i think that's right what, what, I've, I've seen this painting in reproductions a million times and i only saw it in the flesh for the first time a couple of years ago and the we've talked we've mentioned the lighting and of course rembrandt is the master of light but on seeing it for the first time and approaching it the body glows uh -huh. and it is the it is apart from the roughs it, because he's naked and very pale mm. it is the brightest thing in the picture and he's centrally positioned and he's positioned and left to right in this sort of christ-like um position mm. and so you see it and all eyes I, I this is not what Tulp wanted i guess and it's probably not <laughs> I, whether it was what rembrandt wanted or not is a different matter but when you see it for the first time the only thing you see is is Aris Kint. Yeah, it's much more a memorial for him. But, yes, it is. But I do think as well that this is Rembrandt quite young. I think he's only 26 when yeah. he paints this. It's his first big commission, isn't it? And um, and it's it's great for him because it's it's for a very important member of society. He's being paid well for it. And he's showing off his virtuosity. He's, he's, yes, he is. The beauty of looking at art historically is you see connections backwards and forwards. You see how earlier artworks have informed Rembrandt and how he's sort of back-referencing them slightly, but that he's pushing it into this new world of, you know, the Enlightenment reason, science, that's all sort of looming. Um, and that's why I love it. I think it is this transitional piece. Mm. But you've seen, did you see the 
postcard of it then? Is it that of this one? No, no. So, so he then does uh, a few years later in in um, sixteen in the sixteen fifties. Yeah, fifty six. Fifty six. Yeah. yeah, he does his second anatomy lesson, and this is the anatomy lesson of Doctor Damon, mm. and it's it, well, I mean, there's a it's a fascinating story behind this in itself because that all that's left of that is the body and the hands of the prelector, Dr. Damon, and one figure, um, because the rest of it was destroyed in a fire. Mm. And now, again, not sure about the, the the chemical or historical truth about this, but it has been... I, one, one art historian told me the reason that this bit of the painting survives better than the rest of it, which was burnt, is because of the, the lead in the white of the exactly, paint yeah. is more fire resistant. Yeah. And so while all of the, the people who'd paid and Dr. Damon himself, who were all in dark clothes, they got burnt up. And the historical legacy of this painting is that the only person you can see in full is Black John, the ha the, another hanged man. Now, it's a completely different portrait. I don't think it's it's still Rembrandt, which means it's better than almost all art. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's in the same league as, as Dr. Tulp. He's I think he's he's growing into a new area of his style at that point, isn't he? He's changing the way he articulates space. He's yeah. he's playing around a bit more with that one. Yeah. And that foreshortening you mentioned earlier is extreme. In, it's in completely this foreshortened from the feet upwards. In that one right so so yeah, exactly the body is is uh is, is coming out of the picture yeah. and i think the scales of them are isn't quite right if you were to you know look at it in, in a 3d version because his feet look absolutely massive <laughs> but there's a very different thing going on there and he's in the head he's in the brain yeah. so so yeah it's quite gross to him the the, the yeah the, the, uh, which one's it dr damon he's he's right behind that's right peeling open the... so it's peeled open and it's peeled open sort of quarters with the skin and and you can see the the exposed brain so it is it is visceral in in that sense now part of the discussion that we had in the in the program that i made was that some of the contemporary ideas at this time are Cartesian, and Descartes is talking about the, his separation of, of of body and soul. You know, an idea which we no longer hold on to. But there was a suggestion that the pituitary, which is an area, a small pea-like area of the brain, um, might have been the connector between the body and the soul, or the the body and spirituality or god and the suggestion was that damon that's what they're looking for you see this is again this is perfect for me this idea that actually with the the hand and particularly in this case it's the left hand isn't it yeah so the symbolism of left and right in it is isn't it yeah I have to check that though. i think it is i'm like lying out now trying to, to work out yeah. i think it is the left hand so uh if you look at christian symbolism the sheep and the goats the right and the left the right hand of god is for the virtuous and the good right. the left hand is for the sinful so there's a suggestion by working on the left hand uh that there is this is a reflection of this person's redemption mm. um and the idea that you're going into the brain and finding that connection point between the soul and the body again this is not just science for science's sake. No. What they're doing is they're sort of padding it with acceptable religious symbology uh, and also presenting the science at the same time. Well, you can sort of imagine that, you know, the 17th century discussion between me and you or, or, or Rembrandt and, and Tulp or Damon, where in, in this sort of Dutch culture, yeah. they're talking about things like that. They're looking at it and, and that is the contemporary 
discussion. You know. And the artist and the scientist are working alongside one another and they both have different intentions for what they, ne- they want. Yes. I'm sure Tulp would have loved something a bit more more detailed. But... Well, I, I, think, I think the irony is um, that this is commissioned by Tulp He's the prolector. He's a big cheese in town, and um, and it's named after him. Um, and four hundred years later, we, t- we spend most of the time talking about the body. Absolutely, and I like that. I like it. I like that too. And in Damon, it's even worse because the painting is is <laughs> is burnt. Yeah, and we they have um, in in Amsterdam in the, in the I think it's the Museum of Amsterdam where Dr. Damon is kept. In their archives, they have Rembrandt's original sketch of the entire painting mm. um, and it's in pencil and it's it, I think it, it, I mean I've handled this and it, from memory it's postcard size it sounds amazing we were we were waxing lyrical art detective listeners about the, the beauty of making television because actually yeah. one of the best things is that you get into collections you get to see things people show you stuff and people show you stuff <laughs> and you got to see that postcard and that just totally it was. So I mean, it was incredibly moving as well. Because and it's the original sketch by Rembrandt. It was the sketch. So, and and because it's not a painting where you're slightly distanced from it, and because there's so many layers to it, and they're very heavily varnished as well, and you know, mm. there's, so there's lots of reflections and stuff. This is a piece of paper, and it, you can see the, you can you can see that you know the, the the pressure points of having a pencil on the page. In fact, that is very present in the Leonardo's as well. Yeah. That when you get up close, you can see that this has been. You know, it's the it's the etched. scribblings of of a mind. I just adore drawings and sketches. Actually, yeah. you're right. These these things take months, years sometimes to work up, and they're so highly finished. And choices are made, like we were talking about the hat being painted out. Yeah, you see the yeah, hat. yeah. Um, But actually, uh, the the sketching, the lightness, the the freedom, um, that that in a way you're getting really close to the person. Well, it feels really it feels really visceral. It mm. feels like and and you know it feels like someone could have scrawled it next to you so so they have this postcard and it has the layout and it's got the you know various sort of blob figures with with the body in the middle and dr damon holding you know a bit of the brain and the 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 preparator and then various people now they're all gone i mean they're all gone we know who they were they're all lost to history because it burned and even more strikingly than in dr tulp the only figure in that Mm. picture is the dead man the criminal Amazing, isn't it? I, I I love these points uh, where you know, the disciplines break down, and actually, it's it's just about exciting um, collaborations. These this is a collaboration between art and science. You and I are a collaboration between art and science. Well, we we, we talked about this a bit on on history hit, didn't we? That that for almost all of history, there weren't these divisions. Yeah. yeah. And then we go through this period in the nineteenth and twentieth century where, well, in my in science at least. Dis- it, when it as it becomes professionalized and disciplines become ever more specific and more and more precise yeah. and you know you were telling me about your phd is on a you know a, a very very precise subject of bird sim- symbolism yeah century <laughs> bird symbolism yeah. and my my phd was not it was on the development of the retina but one particular layer in yeah. the mammalian retina <laughs> <laughs> it's always crazy how how minute you go to yeah. begin, and then then the connections start. Once you once you almost have the courage to to step away from your specialism and start to explore connections, the connections are everywhere. Yes, they are. And and it, it it's lovely making. I love making the art detective because that's what what I seem to end up doing every week is is connecting with another person from another direction and saying right, well, let's focus on one artwork and see where we go. 
Yeah, and I think that, that, that you know, I focus on the eye and evolution and... Um, oh, we've got a whole other one to do on vision then, and optics. Oh, happily. More, you know, yeah. absolutely happily. But, yeah, but you know, the eye is... I always found it very moving. I did a lot of dissection of human eyes. And I found it... The, the first time I did it, I took the lens out from, from a post-mortem... And I was holding that lens in my, in my to my fingers, and it was slightly opaque because because it was an old guy. But I do I've got this very clear memory of holding it up to the light, and and the photons passing through the lens and into my eye, oh my and thinking this lens has been the the main source of visual information for a man for seventy or eighty years, and and now I'm looking through it, and I remember just thinking, well, that's just. Odd and brilliant. This is what stopped me carrying on with the sciences. I can't deal with those life and death things. I can't do. I had this conversation with Alice Roberts as well. You know, I can't stand blood for a start. Yeah, that's But also help. the idea of the idea of life and death. It's it's so. It, it, yeah, that would just freak me out to a level that I can't really do. But how, how do you cope with with anatomical paintings like like? Well, like this Tull. is the thing. I love the timelessness of what art does because actually, what it does is every time. The new iris or eye look, or sort of the new retina looks at an artwork. You're reinventing it yourself, um, so it, it never really. It's constantly in flux for me. An artwork is constantly being is redefined and looked mm. at again. And mm. um, one of the best art historians, Ernst Gombrich, he he wrote very heavily on optics and the idea that everybody sees slightly differently mm. is key to understanding art history as a discipline. Mm. You know, that, that we are all individual viewers and we actually all look very slightly differently at things. Ab absolutely. And I think that, that the I, I don't lament the progress of an anatomical art into it being a more scientific discipline mm. and being more the realm of textbooks for doctors. You, you can't lament that. Um, but there, there's a period where two of the significant anatomists of the 19th century the Hunter brothers, um, their their anatomical drawings are they want they the one of the hunters now is it William or is it the other one I can't remember well what, the, the main hunter. <laughs> I'm terrible. leaving this totally to you. Oh god, <laughs> where uh, you're going? Yeah, yeah. Well, someone will write an incorrect, or someone, <laughs> someone will just laugh at my ignorance. But was drawing these. Um, uh, he wanted absolute realism in in these illustrations to the extent that. Include he included reflections of skylights in it from from the labs in which they were working. So you you know you get those little cartoonists draw those little corner, corners of windows in yeah. to indicate curvature and, and reflection, and they're there on the pregnant tum tummy of an anatomized woman, or the or the head, the crown of, of the skull of an anatomized um, newborn or or uh, ju just preborn, and they are. Very visceral. Really? Yeah. I mean, they're incredibly detailed and a little bit chewy. Yeah. I mean, again, another big sort of fuck off coffee table book <laughs> with huge pictures. Sorry, Art Detective listeners. He's now Oh, I swore again. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you but, can't be trusted. But they're, they're also, they're also, um, they're, they're slightly dehumanising as well for the woman because yeah. they're all about the, the baby. And so they're cut off at the thighs. Ew. And you can, and but because he wanted this realism in them, they're cut off of the thighs, so you can see all of the insides oh, of no. the thighs. But the rest of it is the womb and the baby, and the babies look very still and sleeping. And this is what date then? This is the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Eighteenth, nineteenth yeah. century. So it's moved on a lot. Late eighteenth. But yeah. 
But you know, the other thing that I think is so interesting... This is, is Burke and Hare territory as yeah, well. Yeah, but that's so, it. That's the other thing you yeah. know, to think about where it then goes. Yeah, so so stealing corpses in order to... Because they're hard to come by. And there was an act of Parliament which made it much more difficult for people to get hold of bodies, for doctors to get hold of bodies in order to cut them up. So no, we're, going, we're going close to Frankenstein here, aren't we? Let's be honest. I, we've, I, we've gone full goth circle. Yeah. <laughs> We're now somewhere on the beaches of Whitby. There's a, <laughs> yeah, there's a thesis waiting to be written. The influence of goth <laughs> on, on, on the science discipline. and arts. Yeah, on the science of humanities. Because I was <laughs> I was just going to finish up and just think about this idea, actually, of, of what art does for so many hundreds of years, which is in the absence of a camera, in the absence of photography, you own, only the artist can try and capture reality. And the better the artist, the more hyper-realistic and perfect the rendering. And so for so many centuries, um, we celebrate the great masters because they could paint and draw with that sense that it is actual life in mm -hmm. front of your eyes, captured for eternity. I think that's exactly it. And not just that, but these are also historically, until this process of it becoming more medicalised and more scientified, this is my new word, is that these are celebrations. Yeah. These, these, are, these are celebrations of of, of of science and of culture and of art and they're they're big public displays and that that idea that you pay to go and watch a theatrical dissection and there would be a um you know a, a celebrations surrounding that this is a huge public event mm. and and it's culturally significant and it happens once a year in bologna and once a year in in padua and people go to it and we've we have lost that and we are squeamish about bodies and and our in, internal organs now in a way that I, I think probably it was it was I don't know whether it was absent at, at, but in the past in the 16th and 17th centuries but certainly I think there was a level of sort of visceral engagement mm -hmm. that was sort of undeniable in a way that that we have we have lost and I I, I think that's I think that's unfortunate. I think it, it peaks as well when you start to get into the territory of Birkenhead, but also Hogarth, when Hogarth does his very disturbing set of prints on um, idleness, where you've got the... Oh, no, it's cruelty, isn't it? Where the final piece is a dissection. Uh, but it's a build-up of cruelty by kicking a dog and then hurting a horse. Right. And they're, they're so upsetting. Right. I can't look at those Hogarth prints without getting really quite upset. Right. And then the very final piece is the dog that was kicked at the beginning is now eating the entrails from the criminal who's being dissected wow. on the table. So it all comes round. Um, and the fact is that was popular. That's, but yeah. let's not forget, because I think you say we're squeamish. You and I are both horror fans. Yeah. We are consuming quite gruesome stuff generally on, on television, on in film, in a way that, yeah, okay, we don't like it if we cut our finger. But actually, we're still engaged. Yeah, There's always been a visceral element of humanity. And it, it never really goes away completely. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very valid point. That, but, I mean, hor horror films are, they're not niche, but they're not necessarily mainstream. And I think it's so, and they are, you know, they're for people like us. Um, people drawn to the shadows is how I like to express oh, it. Oh, lovely. Thanks. I'll have that one uh, <laughs> carved on the tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, in a sense, people, I, I don't know, a lot of people just simply don't know what's inside us mm. and never get to see it and never get to see it. And it, you, you might get to see it in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, or in a horror film, but it's not the same as actually understanding that this is how your organs fit together. But again, I think this is one of those weird areas where science and humanities come together because if you, you know, look at someone like Salvador Dali who's creating surrealist images from his imagination, he's creating, you know, long-legged 
um, elephants and all the rest of it. Mm. But that's drawn out of his imagination. But then I think that the scientist, Einstein says this, doesn't he? But actually, the scientist ends up getting to the point of imagination and belief very, very quickly mm. to go inside, to go out into space, to go down into a microscope. There's these levels at which, you, you know, there, there's, there's physicality almost bends and you go into using the imagination. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that's that's um, that, that, that thing that we mentioned earlier, that bodies are more different on the inside than they are on the outside. And all surgeons will tell you that. Mm. And so w when the, the, the classical representations in textbooks like Gray's Anatomy, are they look visceral and they're, they're, they look like realistic depictions, more realistic depictions, even though they're still, you know, pencil drawings or pen drawings, ink drawings. Um, but they're not you know people are different when yeah. you when you go in any surgeon will tell you you open it up and 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 they they, they you have to have a good route around to, to see what you're looking at because people are different on the inside and it's especially the case when you're looking at diseases which mm. is you know surgeons are more they tend not to open up healthy people <laughs> that's, that's one of the one of the rules of surgery actually <laughs> but then again that's the beauty of the variety inside isn't it i think it's i think it's wonderful i think there's so many points we have talked for way too long we've talked for ages which i knew we would do and we could keep going um but i think we should probably yes, wind up probably best. and we'll probably have to do another one but thank you My hope pleasure. you've enjoyed it i have, have, you I have. no absolutely and i love talking about this stuff i'm very aware that this is not an academic i'm a fanboy of this i'm not it's not an <laughs> academic discipline you know one can read about this and look and and and, and try and inform oneself but it you know and for those who are interested in finding out more about Rembrandt as an artist, we're using this particular painting as a springboard for this cross-disciplinary discussion. But Rembrandt is exceptional and there's, there's, there's loads of other things. And that's, that's the point. This isn't a definitive discussion. Well, that's a bloody good job. It's an open-ended <laughs> debate. So thank you, Adam. It's been brilliant. You're on Twitter, aren't you? I What's have your... been known to you... tweet. I, I, I have been known to. What's your... <laughs> it's Adam? just my name, Adam Rutherford. Adam, Adam Rutherford. I'm on as Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And if you've enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the podcast, which is historyhit.com slash artdetective. There's lots more exciting podcasts to come. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Nita. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.